from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who chose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Carol Rutstein, a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts, who grew up in a Baha'i family. She tells about her father, Curtis Kelsey, and how he found the Baha'i faith. Carol was a professional singer, singing in summer theater and also for Fred Waring. I started the interview by asking Carol to describe growing up. I grew up in a small town near New York City. Uh, the name of the town was Teaneck, New Jersey. It was really a, basically a commuter town for people who worked in New York City, five miles away from the George Washington Bridge. My parents owned a home there. Well, I think I was three months old when they moved into that home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lived there until I got married. My family were Baha'is. Uh, my parents had become Baha'is in the 1920s, maybe even before. So I grew up in a Baha'i home. My father's mother was the first Baha'i in our family. She heard of the faith in around 1910 in this country, and she told my father about the faith, and it it took a while before he recognized the Baha'i faith, but he became a Baha'i probably around the time of the First World War. My father had a very interesting life. He was a young man who really never finished uh, high school, but he became an engineer, um, and he followed in the path of his, his own father, who was a hydraulic engineer. And he heard of the faith actually living in uh, the West. It was either Tacoma, Washington, or Portland, Oregon. One of the early Baha'is, his name was Roy Wilhelm, was the one who first really attracted him to the faith. His mother had been trying to tell him about it, but he was skeptical. Actually, his mother was holding a Baha'i gathering in her home, And she said to her son, my father, that she would like him to stay home. And my father wasn't interested in hearing about the faith, but out of respect for his mother, he decided to stay home. But he said, well, I'm going to be working in my shop downstairs. He had a woodworking shop and was very good at uh, using his tools to do things. So during this gathering, he heard his mother telling Roy Wilhelm to go down and talk to him, and he was all primed for to be very resistant. But instead of talking to him about the faith, he just showed interest in what he was doing, and he, he showed a great deal of interest in his woodworking and asked him about himself and took a real interest mm-hmm. in him. And so this kind of, it really surprised my father and disarmed him. And he thought to himself, this guy is pretty normal. He's not all caught up in religion, and he really sort of took a liking to him. And Roy Wilhelm said to him, you know, I really like this shop. I wish you could come east. He was living near New York City at the time. 
because he was a, a, a very wealthy coffee merchant. Uh, he did exporting and importing of coffee. And he said, I'd like you to come to my home and, and set up a shop like this in my home. And my father said, well, you know, th- that would be very nice, but the chances of that are pretty slim. And so Roy Wilhelm said to him, well, you never know. Strange things happen. And then my father found himself going to Detroit to work for the Ford Company. And at that time, the Ford Company was paying workers $5 a day, and they said it was going to wreck the economy because no one was earning $5 a day. So my father was working in the Ford auto plant, and it became time for Christmas vacation, and he wanted to go and visit his family, who had moved to New Rochelle, New York. (laughs) And he to- he went to his boss, and he said, I'd like to take this vacation off. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, but uh, you can't have that time off. And he said, well, I've made plans. I already have a ticket to go to New York, and I really need this time. He said, well, I'm sorry. He said, okay, well, then I'm going to quit. And his uh, boss said, oh, no, no, you can't do that, because he was responsible for telling his superiors why anybody would quit such a good job. So my father was very headstrong. He said, nevertheless, I'm going to quit, and he did. He, took, he got his pay, and he quit, and he went to New, Roche, to New Rochelle, New York, to visit his family. And, of course, Roy Wilhelm was living nearby, and that's how he began to know Roy mm. Wilhelm mm. and became very close friends with him. But the actual story of how he heard of the faith was, well, how he pursued the faith is that he was having a, a very severe headache because he had contracted typhoid fever. And he was in his mother's home, and he was in his bedroom, and he had this terrible headache, and he couldn't get rid of it. And suddenly he pushed his head into the pillows, and he suddenly heard this music in the room. It was He said it was like a full-piece orchestra filling the room with this beautiful music. Mm. And then he sat up in bed, startled, of course, and looked around to see where was this coming from. And because it was such a mystical experience, he called to his mother and told her about it. And she said, well, let's let's get the Baha'i writings and see if there's something in the Baha'i writings that would explain it. And she brought all these Baha'i, small Baha'i selections. You know, they didn't have a lot of books at that time. They had little mimeographed sheets and small pamphlets. So they started to read these things, and of course, my father's heart had been opened. Mm. And as he was reading these things, he said, Mother, this is true. This, mm. this is the truth. Why haven't you told me this before? <laughs> and she said, I've been trying to tell you for nine years. And that's how he really understand the Baha'i faith. There, my father's mother told my mother about the faith. She was a young person in, in the New York area, and actually my grandmother, my father's mother, met her and told her about the faith. So actually, my grandmother taught both my father and my, my mother before, she was, before they were married. I think they knew each other. The, the family story is that my mother had been in love with my father for nine years, but he did not respond. He did not return. And she actually married someone else. And it was a brief marriage, and they were divorced. And after that... My father and mother began to know each other, and that's when they married. Mm. Some of the early Baha'is in in her town, 
taught her the faith. And I, the names don't come to me at the moment. You know, my husband wrote a book about this. Mm. The name of the book is He Loved and Served, the story of Curtis Kelsey. And it's written by my husband, Nathan Rutstein. And it's one of the first books he wrote. Actually, when my father died, he had been trying to write this story because it's a fascinating story of how, as a young man, after he became a Baha'i, he went to the Holy Land and served in the Holy Land by installing the electric lights on the shrine of Baha'u'llah. He had been trying to write this story, but he didn't wasn't able to finish it, and he passed away. And so he had a lot of notes, and then my husband, who was a writer, decided to write the book. And he, he wrote a beautiful book mm. about my father and the mm. story of his life. And because my father had been in the Holy Land and met Abdu'l-Bahá, who was the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, we heard these stories from the time we were little. And my father made sure that we traveled, we went to Baha'i events, we went to Baha'i summer schools, and our home was filled with people, constantly people coming to our home. So it was a very rich childhood in mm-hmm. a way. Of course, we were, we were surrounded by friends and, and acquaintances who were not Baha'is because we had this really varied, very diverse group of people mm-hmm. coming to our home. It was, it was really wonderful. I asked Carol about her singing career. Yes, I started, sing- I started studying singing when I was 10 years old with a woman who taught in New York. Her name was Maud Godreau. And she actually was a Baha'i, and she had learned quite a bit about singing from one of the early Baha'is whose name was Safa Kinney, Edward B. Kinney, who was a fine musician in New York City, and he had developed a certain method of teaching singing to soldiers who had come back and lost their voices. So I studied, started studying singing with her because my mother recognized that at a very early age, she felt that I had musical ability. And my mother was a musician also. She taught piano and organ, and she also sang and taught singing. And my whole family was very musical. My sisters played cello and piano. Another sister played French horn and piano. I had a brother who studied the clarinet and violin. I studied the violin and piano. and So... Mm. Yeah, I started singing quite early and sang in high school productions and then started singing professionally mm-hmm. after I finished high school. Mm-hmm. I went to Juilliard School of Music for uh, two years. It wasn't in the actual school. It was in sort of what they call the a non-degree uh, program. And I studied there for two years, and mm-hmm. I took things like uh, literature and materials of music, and I studied diction, French diction, German diction, Italian diction, And then I had an audition for musical comedy, summer theater, theater in the round on the Jersey Shore. And so I started singing one summer. I was hired to sing. And I think we did 10 musical theater productions, one a week. And you would learn one during the evening and perform that the next week and learn a new one during the evening and perform it during the next week. So it was a really interesting Tenth Theater in Lambertville, New Jersey, and then we also went to the one in Newtown, Pennsylvania. I forget the name of it. <laughs> and then the next thing I did was to audition for Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians, and then I toured with them for about a year. Uh, working with Fred Waring was very interesting. It was a wonderful group to work for. And we traveled around. I think we did 200 cities in six months or so. We traveled in a big Greyhound bus interesting thing was that I would contact the Baha'is wherever I was. 
I would either look in the phone book or somebody would have given me an address. And so I would have these people coming to the shows or meeting me at a bus station or saying goodbye to me at a bus station. And my coworkers were so curious. How do you know all these people? So it was a wonderful way to sort of just show people that the behind network was just so interesting and so developed. I mean, even though I didn't know these people, I felt like I did know them. And they would take me to their home, or when I had time off, they would come and we would do things together. And so it was really a lot of fun to do that. I remember one really interesting story where I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, and a group of people came backstage and they asked for me, and somehow they thought that I was a Christian scientist. And somehow they had gotten the idea that there was this person in the troupe who... And so they came and met me, and they took me sightseeing. They were the most wonderful people because, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada, at that time was nothing like it is now. Now I understand it's completely developed, but this was a long time ago. So they had the strip where they had the casinos and hotels, but nothing like it is now. And so the people who lived there were just normal people and had a normal kind of life away from the typical Las Vegas atmosphere. And I remember meeting these these three people who were so nice and took me all over. And of course, when I wasn't a Christian scientist, but we had a lot in common because they were very interested in spiritual things. Mm. And so it was really nice. I had studied classical music, so that was my love, really. And my mother was a fine pianist, so we gave concerts from time to time. Mm. Actually, I was married right after I was singing with Fred Waring. And then what I did after that was give concerts at Greenacre or other places with my mother and then with other people. The most interesting story about my father is that he went to the Holy Land in 1921. He was 26 years old, I think. I have to backtrack a little bit. Uh, There is a tablet uh, written in the Baha'i Faith about how the Bab, who was one of the manifestations of God, uh, was put into prison and didn't even have a light, a candle, to be able to write write down the things that he was revealing. And Roy Wilhelm was a very wealthy coffee merchant, as I said, and he had read this tablet, and he decided that he wanted to send a lighting plant to Abdu'l-Bahá, to the Holy Land, in order to light the Shrine of the Bab. And Abdu'l-Bahá wrote back and said, you can send three lighting plants. So he did, and they sat there for a long time. And finally, uh, Roy Wilhelm sent a cable to Abdu'l-Bahá saying, talking about my father and saying that he's a young electrician and that he could install these lighting plants. And Abdu'l-Bahá wrote back and gave him permission to come. So he went. And he was very young at the time, and he was just trying to find his way in the world. He had moved from the West Coast to the East Coast when his parents did. And his father was not a Baha'i and was not in favor of this at all, but he Mm. decided he was going to go. He said he got the strongest impression that he should go. So he sold his possessions and he raised the money. And his father said, well, don't expect any help from me. But one, one way or another, he found the money to go only one way. But he decided he was going to go. And so the story of how he went was really, really interesting because he got a ticket. Mm -hmm. And as far as... Italy. Then he couldn't get any further. So he went down to the ticket agent 
and asked if he could get a ticket further to to uh, Alexandria and to to Haifa and they said oh, no there's no there's nothing coming through here so why don't you just go up to Paris someplace and have a good time <laughs> he said well nevertheless I'm going to give you my my phone number where I'm staying and if anything happens please call me and the next day the ticket agent called him and he said you know the the ship Esperia is stopping here because they have a, a customer on board who has some sort of sickness and he has to be put off the ship and if you want his ticket you can have it and so my father went down got the ticket and then he got all the way to Haifa and when he got there Abdu'l-Bahá said to him did you see how easy it was for you to get here so it's really quite a wonderful oh, story and he spent yeah. nine months there mm-hmm. installing the electricity on those three different places going from place to place mm-hmm. He was there during the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá. Mm-hmm. He actually photographed the funeral procession. Mm. He got up on the roof. He was quite a photography buff. Mm. Actually, when he got on the ship, his father had given him an envelope with, with some money in it and said, well, don't open this till you're on your way. And his mother had given him a very fine camera. So he was able to document the funeral procession mm. of Abdu'l-Bahá. Wow. And he stayed another uh, six or seven months after he had arrived to complete all the lighting. So it was a mm. very significant event in his life and mm. really shaped the our family life. And my father didn't have a great uh, appreciation for academic education because he never went past the eighth grade, and he was kind of a self-made man. He had a very good job. He took over the business of his father in New York City. He had an office in the Woolworth Building, which is one of the old, beautiful buildings in New York City. And he built these huge pipelines on, on location, maybe 12 foot in diameter, wood stave pipelines that would travel for mile for utilities companies. He just learned how to do this from being with his father. Uh, so he didn't have a great appreciation for formal education. But he had a great appreciation for studying the Baha'i Revelation. And he f- he really received a very fine education. And he was quite a researcher. He would compile all kinds of things and he would quote thinkers and philosophers and different people who whose thinking was in line with the Baha'i writings. And so... I feel that uh, the education that we got, and then my mother was a very fine musician. So not only did we have this musical education, but my father's interests were very broad. And Mm -hmm. so in many ways, it was very good. Mm -hmm. You know, as a child, you kind of take for granted your parents. But because we were exposed to the Baha'i faith at a young age, and we went to Greenacre, I think my first year at Greenacre, I was six Mm. years old and I met and some of the really early fascinating figures in the Baha'i faith these were wonderful thinkers and so we were exposed to a very rich life very different mm. from our contemporaries mm-hmm. I, I was married in 1955 and that was the year I was 54-55 that I toured with Fred Waring and then I married my husband, and uh, we moved actually to Oklahoma and started our family. And we lived in Oklahoma, then we lived in Minnesota, and then we moved back to the east. And So my music kind of took a back, back seat, mm-hmm. although I did do some background singing when I lived in Philadelphia. 
you know, these these groups that do background singing, doo-wah, doo-wah behind popular singers. And I had a friend who had a little business doing that. So I did that from time to time. And, mm-hmm. and then after I moved here, actually, I started teaching piano here. And I had a few voice students. But basically, uh, my music career was not the same after that. I asked Carol to describe what life was like after marrying Nat. We lived in Oklahoma. He was working for an advertising agency. And then he got a job working for oh, different different jobs. I think he was selling shirts at one point. And then somebody came through. He was from New York, and he kind of had an affinity for Nat. And he offered him a job in Minnesota writing jingles for radio. We didn't even own a radio. <laughs> He actually gave us a radio, and Nat had no musical ability or musical training, and he actually accepted this job. And we bundled our 10-month-old child into our little station wagon and all our belongings and started driving to Minnesota, and then I think Nat drove most of the way, and I flew part of the way. And we were living in this little, real it could only be called a shack. It had a a little stove in the middle of the living room and you had to go out and buy fuel for it and come back and put the fuel in and it was winter. Mm. And of course, he started this job. Well, he couldn't write jingles, so I wrote the jingles. (laughs) He lasted there about a couple of weeks. And then he got a job at a television station, WCCO, which was a, I think it was a CBS affiliate. Uh, Since he's not here to correct me, I'm not sure if it was CBS (laughs) or NBC, but it was a very good uh, television station. And that's where he got his real foundation with TV news. Mm. Mm. So then after that, we decided to move back to the East Coast, and Mm. he started working in network TV. First, we went to Philadelphia. We came back to the New York area, but he didn't have a job there. We got a job in Philadelphia at a, a television station, and then we went to New York. I grew up in Teaneck, and then we actually bought our first home in Teaneck. It's actually working for NBC News and uh, Dwight Allen, who was then the head of the School of Education here at UMass, came to meet him in New York and offered him a job here at UMass, and he did. So Mm. he came up here. We've lived here 37 years. Our youngest child was three and a half when we moved here, and our oldest child was 14 and actually, our sons went away to boarding school. They went to a Quaker school in Newtown, Pennsylvania, called the George School. We were still living in Teaneck when our oldest son, David, was in what they call middle school. And the, the high school was a big high school, and he was very small in stature at that time. Slow to really get his growth spurt, but he was very athletic, And we thought, you know, he's just not going to do much good in this high school because it was a great big high school. So Nat was very interested in the education of the children. And he had heard from Mildred Matajeda, who was one of the early Baha'is, that her son had gone to the George School, which was a Quaker school. And she felt that the philosophy of education was quite similar to the Baha'i philosophy of education. Mm. So he decided that he would investigate those schools and he took David to visit George School and another Quaker school which is called Newtown School and he decided to go to George School which was a great 
decision, really, because it's a very good school, and he got a great education. But unfortunately for me, getting used to sending a 14-year-old mm. away to high school when you live two hours away was different from coming up here, which was maybe six and a half hours away. But they had a great experience there. Mm-hmm. Actually, my oldest son, who's a physician, uh, he finished his medical education at Brown University. He actually went his first two years to Morehouse College of Medicine in Atlanta. And it was only a two-year school, so he had to transfer after two years. So he transferred to Brown. He graduated from Brown. And then he started his residency. First, he was in Salem, Massachusetts, doing internal medicine, but he didn't like it. So he looked around, and he got this program for a family medicine in Salinas, California, and he finished his residency there. And then he had done his medical education on a national public health scholarship. Mm. So that means they paid for his entire medical education. And so in order to do that, you have to then pay back however many years you were financed to the government. So he chose to go overseas to an underserved area, and it happened to be the Federated States of Micronesia, which is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Mm. And he served on a small island called Pompeii, which was one of the four islands of that that nation. Altogether, he was there, I, I think it was seven years, and then the rest in another island called Yap. If you're familiar with uh, World War II, you'll know the name Yap. It was very significant in World War II. Mm. Then he came back, and now he works for the U- United States government. He's the chief medical officer for the public health service. Mm-hmm. And then my second son, Dale, he's an information officer for UNICEF, and he has lived in Papua New Guinea, Pakistan, Israel, Albania, Rome, and the Philippines. So he's still in the Philippines, probably on his way to China. That will be his next post. Mm. And we travel to all these places, which is really fun. (laughs) That's okay. And my third son, Todd, has never worked outside of the country, but he's a teacher in Baltimore Friends School, which is a Quaker school. He teaches history and social studies and coaches soccer and lacrosse, and he and his mm. family live there. Mm-hmm. And my daughter, Valerie, lives in New York City. She actually spent three years in Micronesia and one year in Russia after she graduated from uh, college. Then she did mm. a master's degree, and the only job she could get was in New York City. She's been there ever since. <laughs> I asked Carol to describe how Nat started writing in the first place. This is interesting because we were living in Teaneck when he actually wrote his first book, Our daughter was very little. She was probably two and a half or three. At that time, you could see commercials on television advertising cigarettes. And one time she walked in the room and she mimicked this commercial that says, you can take Salem out of the country, but... And then she mimicked smoking a cigarette, Mm. drawing on the cigarette and then blowing the smoke out. You can't take the Salem out of country, the country out of Salem. So it was an advertisement for Salem cigarettes. When he saw that, he was just stunned at the effects that TV had on a child. So he got the idea to write this book, and it's called Go Watch TV, which is, in quotes, what parents would say to their children when they didn't want to interact with them, put them in front of the TV set. And then it has a subtitle, The Effects of Television on Children. And he did some research to see how television had affected 
children, and that was his first book. I mm. actually think he did. He may have written that book here. Mm. I think he may have started it in Teaneck, but I think he was here when he wrote the book. So she probably was a little older than that. I asked Carol what the future held for her. I, I don't know. You may be aware that my husband passed away a little bit, bit over a year ago. I had begun to do some art before he passed away, so I'm very interested in collage art and art in general, so I'm hoping that I can pursue that. Mm. I don't do so much music. I do play the piano a little bit and can accompany people, but I don't really do so much music, but art is really something I'm very interested in. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Carol Rutstein, a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts. Carol talked about her father in the interview, and she handed me a CD of a talk that her father gave circa 1970. I thought I would play an excerpt from that talk. This is Curtis Kelsey speaking about the immortality of the soul. Tonight I wanted to talk about a subject that is very vital to all of us, and it's on immortality and eternal life, because this is a question we're all faced with. We're all going this road, you know. The humorous side of it is that when we're born, we're at the head of a chute. And we're sliding down this chute, and at the bottom of that chute, so an opening in the ground, two by six, and we've got to decide what we're going to do on the chute down. Just <laughs> that short trip we take for the life in this world is very short. And in this world, we're developing certain qualities. It's impossible for us to live the life without meditating upon the future life. And by meditating upon the future life, we find out what we're here for and what we're uh, supposed to acquire. We know that man is made in the image and likeness of God. This is the promise in the Holy Book. And, may, and so the, in this short time here, this laboratory that we have, this great workshop of this world in which we find ourselves, is created for us to develop uh, the pattern of life in the next world. In this life, we're developing our spiritual body just as we were developing the body when he came into this world, acquiring eyes, ears, and so forth to enter this world, we are developing certain capacities that we'll take with us in the next life. And so we finally find out what these are. And these are the attributes that God has expects us to find. You know, an attribute is something we only possess to the extent we can live it. For instance, justice or kindness or thoughtfulness or consideration, mercy, and these qualities are attributes of God which only we only belong to us as long as we can reflect them. For instance, I might say I'm honest, for instance, and then the temptations come and I'd be dishonest. Honesty is thrown out the window the minute I break that law, you see. So this is, applies to all these attributes. And we have to ask ourselves daily how we're setting forth this positive attitudes of life. And then as we realize we're doing this and it becomes part and parcel of our life, there comes a time in our life it's no longer an effort to be good. It becomes natural for us to do it. So the whole purpose that we're passing through in this workshop is to give us the opportunity to reflect these attributes. And you can see how quickly the world would change if humanity was reflecting these attributes. You see, we belong to the body of mankind, all of us. And so we can't expect, even as Baha'is, we can't expect to be perfect in hell when the whole body of humanity is suffering so much and so much is going on in chaotic conditions over the world, it affects all of us because we belong to this one incorporated body of humanity. This spiritual world is like unto the world phenomenal. They are the exact counterpart of each other. The spiritual world and the phenomenal world are the exact counterpart of each other. What is seen here is our pictures of what should exist in the spiritual world. 
And we as, uh, as human beings are unaware of this. As I bring out some facts, you'll see how very unaware we are of this spiritual world which is around us. It's the most important world. Everything else is a shadow, but it's the exact counterpart. This world is the exact counterpart of the spiritual world. The whole world has been religionized. We belong to Christianity, we're Jews, we're Buddhists, we're so forth, we belong. But now a man has to become spiritualized in this age. So we find in the teaching of Baha'u'llah, a person can't call himself a Baha'i and think this is going to make him a Baha'i. The only distinction that's going to, that's going to show us that we are Baha'is is that these qualities are reflected from us. This is the proof that we can reflect these qualities. So he says it will be seen in the people themselves, the qualities we'll see. We never had in the teachings of the past any clear understanding of the subject of immortality. We're all speculative. Even the statement in the Bible, in my father's house are many mansions, is a beautiful statement, but it never gave a person the assurance of what it was. It was a great mystery that Jesus spoke about. In my father's house are many mansions, but we're not so, we're not so would have told you. But this, as I say, is a... Uh, while it's a very clear statement of Jesus, it's, it, along with the past information we have on this subject, was speculative. Unless one person really understood who Jesus was, they couldn't, they wouldn't have grasped that up, the statement he made. So let's get a few things clear first. Now, immortality or physical phenomena is the first point. Now, there, everything is immortal. There isn't anything you can look at that isn't immortal. You can't, the, the atoms are changing from form to form, but they're always, you can't destroy an atom. It simply changes in form. So to make any difference, what you look at, you know that that form or this uh, combination of things is always in existence, always will be. So this is simply an understanding of what is immortality. But there's a second one, what is the immortality of the spirit? And this is the important point to recognize. Four kingdoms, the mineral kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, the animal kingdom, the human kingdom. Each kingdom is circumscribed and cannot get out of its environment. A rock will remain a rock until it's disintegrated and absorbed by the roots of the vegetable and becomes a vegetable, you see. It has to have that thing happen to it that took it away from the mineral kingdom into the vegetable kingdom. Neither would the vegetable escape its environment unless it's eaten by the animal and ourselves and comes into the, another form. Then the, as we move into the animal kingdom, we have a, each time there's an added quality. I pick up, a, if I touch this piece of mineral here, I won't touch because I don't want to the mic, but all I would get back from it was a reflection of a solidity, a solid. And yet we know from the science today that there's motion in this mineral here and there's a mineral spirit behind it. The mineral spirit is daily working for the disintegration of the mineral to enter the vessel. And when this happens, it leaves the mineral state and comes into the vesicle. Then when it comes into the vesicle, there's a plus quality there that didn't exist in the mineral, which was flexibility, growth, you see. Then we step into the animal kingdom, we have a plus quality added there, which is sense <coughs> perception, which didn't exist in the vesicle, the mineral or the vesicle. Then when we come into the human kingdom, we have the mineral, the vesicle, the animal, but we have another quality which doesn't exist in those three qualities, which is the intellect the power to rationalize and to understand. Just as these three kingdoms are circumscribed and cannot escape their environment, we too are circumscribed and cannot escape our human environment unless assisted by some other power. Now what do you think that power is?
<laughs> it's the power of faith. And if a person doesn't have faith in the divine plan, what's he going to do? He's going to figure it out for himself, isn't he? It's the intellect. is the greatest barrier that can happen to any individual. While the intellect is the greatest gift that God has given to us, it's also the greatest barrier because man judges God with his finite intellect, you see. Whereas he should realize that he is a finite being and he is dependent upon the infinite being, God. And the minute he recognizes he has discovered his Lord, well, I philosophically say, he who has truly known himself has known his Lord, you see. And the minute he reaches this point, he steps out of the human environment and, and enters another environment which doesn't exist in the human environment. The human world is totally ignorant of the kingdom of God. Totally ignorant. Now, people have many fine ideas about God, but still it's an imagination because God has a definite plan by which he speaks to humanity. Unless they find this manifestation of God and find his plan, they can't recognize the step ahead. People independent in their investigation of truth. They're born in a Christian family, remain a Christian. Born in a Jewish family, remain a Jew, a Mohammedan, likewise. They would have seen the march of God right down through progressive revelation. They would recognize the voice of God speaking in all the prophets down through history. Why we're here, God created us because he loved us. It's scientifically true. It's impossible for us to, to know God unless we love God. This is the basic in all the religions. These are the eternal verities that have never changed and never will change. Love of God and love of mankind. And it says in the Bible, he who claims he loves God and doesn't love his fellow man, he's a liar and there's no truth in him. You see how, how direct it is. You have to, the proof that you love God is your love for mankind. And look what this would do to the world if people really loved one another. You can see from that that the, uh, the eternality of the immortality of the spirit. There's a difference between the eternality and the immortality, you see. Because at the time of conception, we come into the existence. The soul comes into existence at the time of conception. And once created, continues forever. But a person can be in this state of immortality and not this state of immortality. Eternality, you see, because he can be in, in this condition of a good human being, but if he doesn't know the purpose of life and the manifestation of God, he still has to rise to that degree of attainment. So you cannot rise above the degree to which you have not attained. So we have to recognize the station and the manifestation in order to move forward. Now I wanted to show you how speculative things were. There were beautiful statements, and our philosophers, our poets, our scientists, have striven for centuries to understand this mystery. It's one of the greatest mysteries, this mystery of death, you know, which is an imagination and a superstition to think of death, because there's really no such thing as death when we tell you when come out. But here's a poem that was written by Tennyson. I've only taken two verses of it to illustrate the point. And you'll see in this poetry how Tennyson was trying to describe a mystery that he couldn't put into words. He said, Thine are these orbs of light and, and shade. Thou madest life in man and brute. Thou madest death, and lo, thy foot is on the skull which thou hast made. Thou wilt not leave us in the dust. Thou madest man, he knows not why. He thinks he was not made to die. And thou hast made him, thou art just, you see. Now here was Tennyson trying to unravel this mystery. He knew that there was something that he couldn't get a hold of, but he was saying that God was just and he would sometime, this would be revealed to us. 
Robert Browning, I won't go ahead to read it, but Robert Browning said similar things, and he said, oh, at the end, he says, Oh, fool, to claim the little cup of water's earth, earth's knowledge offers to thee for thy thirst, or the beauty of the love of earth, when the immeasurable waters of the knowledge, beauty, and the love of the eternal paradise are thine beyond this earth. Well, that was Browning, as he's trying to illustrate in his poetry of it. Now, the famous French uh, philosopher, Ernst Renan, in 1823 to 1892, he died in the year Baha'u'llah passed away, wrote, The day in which the belief in the afterlife shall vanish from the earth will witness a terrific moral and spiritual decadence. Some of us perhaps might do without it, provided only that others held fast to it. But there is no power or lever capable of raising the entire people if once they have lost their faith in the immortality of the soul. Now, see, there's a, uh, one of our foremost thinkers in Ernst Renan saying that the, the, that the key to lifting people is to realize that they, the realization that there's something beyond this physical life. When a person loses their faith in the afterlife, they turn back to the animal nature. And this is what we see going around the world. People have lost faith. They don't have a goal. And we see what the terrible things that have happened because a man's loss of this spiritual faith. Aristotle, when he was, uh, was a deep friend of Plato, and he attended a school from 17 to 37 years of age, and he held that the only the active intellect in man is immortal. He also felt that the soul could not exist without the body, now, they were trying to use, see how speculative that statement is? It doesn't give you any information, just trying to figure it out. Well, I wanted to go along, there were Socrates, Aurelius, Avicenna, Averroes, Spinoza, all these were our foremost thinkers in the past 19th century. Leibniz, Henry Bergson, and here's one very, Dr. Carl Gustav Jung, the famous psychiatrist. Here's a man who, who gave up on the theory. He wrote a book on life after death, and he said, I prefer not to believe in such a subject because, he said, it's mythology, it's speculation. He couldn't figure out anything. He said, as a matter of fact, I don't know anything about it, nobody else does. Now, here's a man who's with the, one of the foremost thinkers uh, speaking in this term that he had given up on this subject. I'd prefer not to even promote such ideas. He didn't know what the subject was. Now, he'd written a book on life after death trying to explain it, and that was his conclusion. And here's a very humorous but interesting statement from a biologist, Edwin Conklin. He says, the probability of life originating from an accident is comparable to the probability of an unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a print shop. And Albert Einstein, many people think that Albert Einstein wasn't a religious man, he was a very religious man, they thought, but he wasn't a dogmatic person. He had very high ideals and belief in life. And he was asked the meaning of life, and he said to answer that question at all implies a religion. But this doesn't give you any answer. It's all right to make a statement, but it doesn't give you any answer. And then he said, the man who regards his own life and that of his fellow creatures as meaningless is not only merely unfortunate, but almost disqualified for life. Potential energy and kinetic energy. Potential energy is like a steam engine full of steam or a loaded gun ready to fire or a tightly coiled spring, an unlighted match, a storage battery, and so forth, potential energy. 
And kinetic energy is taken from the Greek meaning to move. It is energy in motion. Everything in our universe results from one form changing into another form. This is called transformation of energy. From this observation we see that physical phenomena as regards to bodies is not immortal. What is immortal are the elements that compose the forms, for we see these elements acting through the law of composition and decomposition. This premises an intelligence behind the form. It's an impossibility. If it was a normal thing for the, for the body to be decomposed, we wouldn't see it composed again, you see. This proves that there's a power that causes the composition and causes the, the decomposition of the body. Well, the uh, Baha'i teachings explain it this way, that God should be realized as the one power which animates and dominates all things which are but manifestations of its energy. Now, the scientists don't know what energy is. Here's a Baha'i statement telling us what. It's the energy of God that dominates and manifests all things which are manifestations of its energy. And it's interesting to note that scientists say that the ultimate nature of energy is a secret that has eluded them. In the last analysis, energy and matter are identical since the essence of each is a unit of charge of electricity, is what they say. But as Baha'i as we understand that this energy is the power of God behind everything. Now, if your insight is open, you can see the next world as clear as you see this world. Now, you're all Baha'is, most of you. I'll ask you a question. Do you see the next world? How many see the next world? It's clear to see this one. Well, I see any hands. <laughs> if your inside is open, you see the next world, it's clear to see this world. So we'll give them play a little game to illustrate that, and I think after I tell you this, you say to yourself, I see you, I hear you. Now, if a person doesn't have sight, what do you say about him? He's blind. If he can't hear, you say he's deaf. If he can't speak, you say he's dumb, don't you? This body of ours does not conduct the process of intellection or thought radiation. It's only the medium of the grossest sensation. So who does conduct this process? You do. See, this body lives under the direct influence of you and I, as rational human soul. When we come to the realization that each and every one of us is a, a creation of Almighty God, this was finding God within us, the realization that each one of us is a creation of Almighty God was finding God within us, you see. What a difference. The rational human soul, which is not subject to the laws of composition and decomposition. So where people think that the body is the substance, they should reverse it. What is the real substance is the spirit. And it motivates the body. Now the proof of that is, person has a heart attack, if a person had a heart attack and fell in front of us here on the floor, you'd have a perfect corpse on the floor, but you could cut it into millions of pieces and you wouldn't find the motivating power of that body. And all that has happened is that the, the body was at that time cut off, but the spirit was right where it was before the body was cut off. So this next world that we're looking at here is you're, you're, you're doing thinking, I know I'm doing the talking, but you're listening to the talk. And what's going on in your consciousness has nothing to do with your physical body. It's you thinking and listening to this. And which is most important, this physical body, this body is sitting around here, or this reality behind each one of us, you see. Now this is what meant by insight. Insight is required to see this and not argument. So when we reflect upon this, the spiritual qualities, we're prone to overlook these things. We know, we, we see this wonderful universe of God around us. We see all the things that he has created. 
And people, uh, I, he says, blind is the eye that can't see God everywhere before him, behind him, at the side of him. Power of God, all around us. See, it's God who controls all the situation. And blind is the eye that can't see it. When we recognize people in the next life, how much more will you recognize people in the life? Because that's the real world of vision. That's where all the disclosed mysteries will be revealed to us. Here we're tied up to a body, you see. We have to function through an organism. But when we don't need the organism anymore, we function without it. And you know, if a person, a very dear friend of ours passed away this last weekend, Lori I was his brother-in-law, and we were talking Sunday, and I remember we were sitting around the table, we were talking about what we were going to do with our uh, date fair program. We had all the plans laid out, and money was gone. Had a, had a heart situation, and first I ordered, and he was on the operating table four and a half hours, and next day, afternoon, he had passed in the next kingdom. Well, all that night I was thinking about his presence was so powerful that I almost spoke out and said, well, what do you want me to do, Clarence? <laughs> and you see, we don't realize that in this very room there are people listening to us that we don't see physically. And in the next world, you'll find all the friends of former and past dispensations present in the heavenly assembly. That man is a spiritual being, not a material being. This body doesn't conduct the process of intellect and thought radiation. It makes it very clear to us that you and I conduct this process. We're the one thing. These qualities that you and I possess, like like memory, they are inherent qualities for each one of us. You see, now an inherent qualities is something you can't think of yourself without. You can't think of a man without memory, without hearing. These are not physical qualities. These are all spiritual qualities. So when you drop the body, you still use these qualities. And your understanding has increased a thousandfold in the next life. A thousandfold. So this is another very dangerous thing to recognize because this shows us how much how important it is for us to prepare this ethereal body that we're creating here. This ethereal body is the exact counterpart of this body. And we'll know people in the next world. How much will you know them in the next world? Because that's the world of insight and the world of vision, you see. Now, if we, have, if we haven't paid attention to the teachings of God in this day and the teachings, we determine the station we'll have by what we do here. There's no one can raise any excuse or any alibi for not having had an opportunity to, uh, to respond to the call of God in this day. So it's in the hands of each and every one of us. So this is the, with, uh, the same with us in life. Everything depends upon the effort we make. Well, this is the important thing of that. We've had in the past pigeonholes certain things. They spoke of mind, soul, and spirit, you know. Well, we don't as Baha'is. We speak of one thing, you, the rational human soul. There's no such thing as a dual reality in man. There's only the one reality, you, the rational human soul. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Carol Rutstein and the excerpt from a talk by Curtis Kelsey, Carol's father. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.